It's something that we, I'm sure each one of us has seen before. Something that if you're in a, a big city, maybe in the inner city, or maybe along billboards on the side of the road, abandoned houses or old train cars especially, and sometimes even dirty trucks. What am I talking about? Graffiti. We've all seen graffiti before, right? Personally, I think it looks pretty neat. Now, I don't endorse graffiti by any means. But there are better ways to get your message across than a graffiti. But it's a way to claim territory or a way to send a message to people. And this morning, we're going to look at God's graffiti. We're going to look at a writing on the wall that the Lord did to get his message across, to claim a territory for himself as well. And so this morning, I'd invite you to stand as we look at Daniel chapter 5, verses 17 through 30. It's Daniel chapter 5, verses 17 through 30. Reading in Jesus' name. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, because of the grandeur which he had bestowed on him. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven." They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, uparsin. This is the interpretation of that message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Father God, these are your words. Your word is truth. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that you would sanctify us in your truth. Speak to our hearts this morning, Lord. Speak to my heart as well. Help us to look in awe and wonder of who you are and humbly submit to you in everything we do. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Here in our text we see that the king Belshazzar is throwing a feast. He's throwing a feast for all of his nobles, for a thousand nobles, for all of his wives, for his concubines as well. 
And out of nowhere, in the midst of this great party, appears a hand, not an arm, not a person, a hand, and inscribes something on the wall. And rightfully so, as just as you and I would do if we were to see something like this, the king is terrified, and he's trembling, not quite sure what to do with this message, not sure what it means for him. And he's looking for anyone to relay the message onto him, to explain what this means. After all, the king's own wise men couldn't figure out the message. The king sends for Daniel. He's terrified. He wants to know what in the world is going on. What does this mean? Daniel interprets the message for the king. But before he interprets this message, he gives the king a much-needed message. He goes and gives a brief little sermon for him, a little history lesson for the king, something that he would have already known, but something he needed to be reminded of. Daniel isn't softening or adapting the message for the king to earn these rewards that the king is offering him, but he's giving him the message straight. He uses this opportunity to proclaim the word of God to all of the people that are in attendance in this party. And so in verse 26 and 28, we find the message that he has. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now, is this a message that any one of us would want to hear concerning ourselves? Is this a message that any one of us would want to hear concerning our great king, our king who there is no one else more powerful than him? It's not a message you would like to hear, but it's a message that God has for this king. It's a message that God has for us this morning as well. This message was clear. The king who thought he had all power really didn't have as much power as he thought. We find out his days are numbered. You see, God was the one who put this king in power. And God was the one who was going to relieve this king of his kingly duties. His kingdom was coming to an end. And the message, you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. You've been weighed and you're too light. You don't quite measure up to what the scales require you to be. Now this wasn't a congratulatory message on the king losing weight. This isn't what this is talking about. But it's saying this is what you need to measure up to. And king, I'm sorry, but you don't measure up to what you need to be. The scale doesn't equal out. Belshazzar comes up short. He doesn't measure up. Now we aren't given the counterweight that the king must meet. But as we study God's word, we know this weight that the king must meet. The Lord is clear. You must be perfect as I am perfect. You must love me above anything else. You must have no other gods before me. You are to be holy and righteous and to rule in a way that is glorifying to me. And Belshazzar is put up against this weight and he doesn't tip the scales. It's a terrifying thing to be found wanting in the judgment scales of God. And yet somehow we find it comfortable. We distract ourselves with earthly things. This king is hearing this message, but he's distracting himself, surrounding him with all of his wives, with all of his concubines, with all of his nobles that are underneath him, serving him, looking at all of these things that he has created, that he has done, what a powerful man he is. And yet this message comes to him. You have been found wanting in the judgment scales of God. We have an ability to push away any thoughts of the judgment of God. 
We sometimes rationalize away our, our own shortcomings. We say, well, it, it's not my fault. I didn't really mean to do this. It's just an honest mistake I, or I didn't have a choice or maybe even the devil made me do it. Or if you were in my shoes, you would understand it. You'd do the same thing. And we keep coming up with excuse after excuse, trying to rationalize away our sin and not just accepting it as sin is what it is. We point out how much closer we might be in balancing the scales than others, and in that we find comfort. We're content where we are. We don't want to be the one who sticks out amongst the crowd, and so we ignore God's justice scales. And we say, surely God will understand. He's merciful, right? God is love, and he loves me. He's going to overlook this. It doesn't matter what I do. And yet the truth of the matter is, Belshazzar is not the only one who is found wanting in these scales. But every single one of us, apart from Christ on this scales, we are found wanting, and we are found deserving God's wrath. God's word tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And later on, that the wages of this sin is death. Our sin is not excusable. No matter how hard we try to rationalize it away, our sin, in all reality, is damning. And that ought to make us uncomfortable. It ought to terrify us just as it terrified Belshazzar seeing this message and hearing this message. The message for the king continues. The last word explains a division of the kingdom, but it also explains who's getting it here. It says the kingdom's going to be taken over by the Persians. And at this time that these people are celebrating, they are, con they are at war currently with the Medes and the Persians. They've retreated to the safe place just to have this party amongst themselves distract them from what's really going on outside. And Daniel comes with this message. And before these people even know it, the enemy at their gates have come through the gates and will take over. Little did Belshazzar and his nobles and wives and concubines know how soon this was going to be happening and how soon this would come to pass. This message for Belshazzar was one that he wasn't ready to hear. It seemed harsh. It seemed ruthless. Where is the mercy here in this declaration? Being found wanting on the scales of God's justice should be a place that no one wants to be. But it's a place you and I and everyone deserves to be. Daniel shares with us the reason why the king was deserving of this judgment. What was the reason for this message? We see a couple of clues in verse 20, in verse 22, and verse 23. We read about Nebuchadnezzar the chapter before. And we've all heard of Nebuchadnezzar before. He's the king that's reigning during the fiery furnace episode with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he, a few days later, later on in his rule, he steps out of his royal palace and he says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence, by my might, by my power, and for the glory of my majesty? In other words, look at all of this great stuff that I've done. Look at what I have accomplished. This is all mine. And before he even finishes his admiration, he hears a voice from heaven with some humbling words. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to go crazy. You're going to go crazy and live like a beast among the beasts of the field until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Until you realize that God is in charge and not you, you are going to live like a beast in the fields, eating grass, just like cattle. This king, who is one minute ago observing all the things that he has accomplished, his power, his might, his glory, 
And just like that, flips a switch and God sends judgment on him. So he's crazy, he loses his mind. And he's running around in the field with the cattle, chewing on grass. Daniel reminds Belshazzar of this humiliating event for the king and reminding him that he isn't the one who calls the shots. Nebuchadnezzar was proud and arrogant against the Lord, and God taught him a lesson. But he didn't just teach Nebuchadnezzar a lesson. This lesson stands for everyone since that time. It stands for you and me, but it especially stands for Belshazzar. But Belshazzar ignored the warning. In verse 22, Daniel says, You have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. How did he do this? What was this act that the king did to exalt himself against the Lord? He took the vessels from the temple, the ones that were dedicated to the service of the Lord, and he gave them to his guests at this feast. Now, once all these vessels were handed out, he began to praise the gods of gold, the gods of bronze, of iron and wood and stone, thanking them for such a great gift, thanking them for these great cups they have provided for his feast. But here, these vessels were meant to be solely used for the purpose of glorifying God and worshiping Yahweh. And here, they're being used to worship false gods, gods who don't see, gods who don't hear, gods who don't understand. It may not seem like a big deal to us, because when we have guests over, we bring out our nice china as well. We want to serve them the best. And so we see Belshazzar trying to serve them the best that he had. But these cups were reserved for the service and glory and worship of God. They were not for him to use. He's showing his disdain for God, no respect for the true king here. And we see a good picture of what sin truly is in Belshazzar's actions. It's not simply doing something naughty. It's not merely an error in judgment. It's not an impulsive act that if we just counted to ten, we wouldn't do it and fall into it. It's not something that we could have avoided if we just took a deep breath. But the essence of sin is rebellion against God's good will. It's telling the creator of the universe, listen, God, I'm talking here. Listen to me. This is what I'm going to do. I know this is what you said, but I don't care what you said. This is what I'm going to do. I'm in charge here. The truth is, regardless of our intention, this is our reality. We can say, I, I didn't mean it that way, or I didn't know, or it's not what it looks like. But all sin is rebellion against God. It's telling God, I don't care what you say or what you want. I'm going to do it my way. I'm in charge here. Sin is telling God to take a hike, to say, you're not welcome here anymore. Who are we to tell God what to do? And when you think about it this way, it puts our sin into perspective, doesn't it? Sin isn't a harmless act. It's not something that we just unknowingly stumble into. It's more than just a guilty pleasure. It's defiantly shaking your fist at the one in whose hand is your life breath, in whose hand is your every heartbeat, and saying, I don't want you. How often do we think of sin in that way? If I'm honest with you, I never think of sin that way. I think of sin as just something that can easily be forgiven. But here we see the true reality of sin. Sin isn't a minor misdemeanor, but sin is a death sentence, deserving the death penalty. Belshazzar is proud and arrogant. He sets himself up against the Lord. He should have learned from Nebuchadnezzar. And we also should learn from Nebuchadnezzar and should learn from Belshazzar. 
Now, we may not walk out our front doors and stand on our porches and declare, Oh, mighty Deschler, oh, mighty Byron, this is all that I have done. Look at this farmland that I have created. I don't think any of us have done that. But maybe we come inside our house and look at all the possessions that we have. We hang up our hat after a hard day of work and say, Look at what I have done. Look at what I have created. Look at this life that I have made. Maybe you look back to your life from where you were five years ago, 10, 20, 50 years ago, and you say, look what I've done. I've made it. This is what I've become. Or do you humbly thank the Lord for all that he has done in providing for our needs, knowing that he is the one who is pouring out on you blessing after blessing after blessing? Pride is just one example of our sin. But I think I can safely say that we've all been guilty at one point or another of pride in our own lives, of defiantly shaking our fists against God, saying, I don't care what you want me to do. This is what I'm going to do. And there's so much more sin that's lurking in our own hearts that we defiantly shake our fists at God and say, I choose sin over you. How arrogant can we be? And this attitude is begging for judgment. We hear the story of Belshazzar, and it shocks us. We find out that God really meant what he said. He's serious about what he's written. We see this writing on the wall. And what's next? What's to come of Belshazzar's pride? And what's to come of this writing on the wall? If you've ever heard the phrase before, the writing's on the wall, you know it's not a happy message. You know good things aren't to come. You know that it's a message of doom and gloom. And this comes from this passage. This is where the phrase comes from. After the king is given the message, he gives Daniel the gifts that he's promised. Daniel becomes a third in power in Babylon, and we read verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. Here his kingdom had come to an end. His reign had ended, and he had died. God numbered his days and his rule, and his time was up. And Darius the Mede takes over the kingdom. God had fulfilled his word, this writing on the wall for this king. We see the judgment that comes from God, but do we see what else is going on here? Because there's more that's happening in this text than what we just read. If we take a step back and we look at what's going on in the context of history and God's redemption, redemption purposes, take a step back and think back to the message of Isaiah, the message of Jeremiah, the message coming for this wicked nation of Babylon. Prophecies that were written 150 years prior to this event, that God was sending his Messiah to deliver the Jews that were in Babylon. He says, I'm going to send my anointed one to deliver you. And Jeremiah tells his people, 70 years you'll be in captivity and I will deliver you. Do you know what other days came up at the same time of King Belshazzar's reign? The 70 years came up as well. God was enacting his salvation plan for these people as well. There's a message of deliverance here. Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of the kings, to open, do to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron, barns, their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. 
For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no other God. There is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah wrote this 150 years before this happens. And here in his fulfillment, we see God declaring to his people, I am the Lord, I am still your God, I am still ruling and reigning now. Isaiah is prophesying of Cyrus, who he, he describes as the Lord's anointed, that he will subdue the nations. The Lord will go before them and make the rough places smooth. He'll give them treasures and hidden wealth, and they will know that what the Lord has done. And see, this is the Lord's hand behind this. Now, Isaiah says Cyrus, but Daniel says Darius. And to myself included, before looking into this, I think that's two different people. There's two different names here, right? It's two different names, but it's the same person. Darius was a name given to him at birth. And do you know what name he decided to choose to reign with? I'll give you one guess. Cyrus. Cyrus was the name that he decided, this is what I'm going to be known by as I rule and as I reign. And so God here is bringing about his word to happen. No one could have predicted it. No one was going to guess that Darius was actually going to be this Cyrus whom the Lord described. But yet here he is proclaiming that the Lord is still the God of Israel, fulfilling his purposes, even in this judgment brought upon King Belshazzar. This new king, Darius the Mede, or Cyrus, the king of Persia, made a decree to release the Jews from their 70-year captivity that was prophesied in Jeremiah 29. In Ezra chapter 1, starting at verse 1, we see these words. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. This wasn't just Cyrus's good idea, but this was in order to fulfill scripture that he is making this proclamation. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in J Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And so we see an aspect of deliverance here. God is fulfilling his word to his people who woke up that morning seeing this party that uh, King Belshazzar had and knowing, again, here's another day that I'm in captivity. And yet God was delivering them even amongst these things that are happening right now. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the Jews in captivity? All looks bleak and all of a sudden the Lord removes the king. All of a sudden the Lord brings another king to sit on the throne. You're, you wake up the next morning in another nation. You haven't moved your house at all, but all of a sudden you're no longer a part of Babylon. You're a part of Persia. He places another king on the throne who just so happens to be this prophesied Messiah that Isaiah had talked about so long ago, to send God's people back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple so God once again could dwell among his people. What a 180 degrees from the, next, the day before. God had numbered the days of Belshazzar's reign, and God had numbered the days for the Jews to be in captivity in Babylon. God was in charge, delivering his people just like he said he would. And so he did. So what does this mean for all of us today? We're not Jews, we're not living in Babylon, we're not living in captivity. It's neat history if you like to read history, but what does it have to do with us? 
the first thing hopefully is obvious, the first thing we take from this is that the Lord is still ruling and reigning. Regardless who might be on the earthly throne, the Lord sits on the throne and he is in control. And he is continuing to keep his promises, even if it doesn't look like it. Every single promise he is keeping. And secondly, to beware of the pride that lurks in our own lives. The thoughts that deceitfully come to entice us to sin, to put ourselves in place of the Creator. Just as Belshazzar was weighed on the scales and found wanting, you and I, apart from Christ, are in that same position of judgment. On the scales found wanting, not measuring up to what God requires us to be. So humbly admit and confess to the Lord your own inadequacies and come to the one who will give you his coat of righteousness and tip the scales in your favor to make you righteous through his son. And finally, just as the Lord sent a message to deliver God's captive people, the Lord has also come in the flesh to deliver us from our captivity, from our captivity of sin, to save us from our own sin, to save us from our own sinful hearts, our own old natures, to bring us back to a right relationship with him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. And so don't be prideful like Belshazzar, thinking, I've got this, I can do this on my own. But come humbly before the Lord and say, God, I accept what you have for me, because I know that in and of myself, I am sinful and I can't tip the scales in my favor. No matter how many good works I do, I am unworthy. Lord, have mercy on me. And as we come humbly before the Lord, recognizing our own inadequacies, he gives us the righteousness of Christ, forgiveness which Christ has accomplished on the cross through his life, death, and resurrection, and that blood. So as we think of sin, sin isn't something that's just easily forgiven. Sin is still shaking your fist at God, saying, scram God, I'm going to do it my own way. But even when we were shaking our fists at God, Christ came to this earth while we were still sinners. And for the love of you and me, and so that you and I can have hope and eternal salvation with him, lived amongst us a perfect life and died on the cross while the crowd was still mocking him, shaking their fists at him, pouring out his love for you and for me so that you and I can be a part of his kingdom. Don't shake your fists at the Lord, but come humbly before him and accept this forgiveness that he has come to give us through the cross. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you this morning, we acknowledge the times in our lives where, Lord, I, I acknowledge to you that I, I often think of sin as something that's not a big deal. Sin that's just a small thing. It's just a minor infraction, Lord. I don't see it as you see it. It's something that separates me from you. Lord, help me not to give in to sin, not to give in to this temptation to be prideful and arrogant against you. Help me to submit to you, Lord, in, in everything that I do. And Father, we thank you for uh, coming to this earth while we were still shaking our fists against you and dying on the cross for our sins so that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven. Lord, as we live our lives, help us to rule, understand that you are still sitting as king in our own lives as well and to submit to your lordship. And Father, help us to hold on to the promises that you have given us in your word as well, regardless of what it looks like around us, that we may have confidence in you and in your word. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us and for the deliverance that you have brought for each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.